welcome to the Skeptical Christian Podcast, episode number 12. I'm your host, Kyle For today's special edition episode, I am posting a live recording of a talk I gave on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll also take a look at The Sun Rises by William Lane Craig for the book review. But first, let's take a quick look at the news. The Kansas-based Westboro Baptist Church is being brought to court in a civil case for the first time. The Westboro Church is a small group that has gained great notoriety because the members frequently picket events with extremely offensive picket signs. One of their most frequent targets is military funerals. They picket at the funerals of fallen American soldiers with signs that read, God hates fags, and thank God for dead soldiers. Apparently, their justification for picketing at funerals is that they are outraged that the U.S. military allows homosexuals to serve. In any case, this group is obviously almost universally despised, but has never before been brought to court. But now, Albert Snyder, who is the father of Matthew Snyder and a victim of a picketing protest by the Westboro Church, is claiming that the demonstration worsened his depression and led to health complications. He is seeking recovery in a civil case. On a personal note, I think I speak for just about everyone when I say that I am disgusted with the activities these Christians are engaged in. In fact, as a Christian myself, I am particularly disturbed because it is these kinds of things that make Christianity look like an ignorant and hateful cult. More news concerning the war in Iraq. A U.S. soldier who said that his Christian beliefs compelled him to love his enemies rather than kill them was honorably discharged with conscientious objector status. According to Captain Peter Brown, In following Jesus' example, I could not have fired my weapon at another human being, even if he were shooting at me. Brown's honorable discharge brings the question of pacifism to the forefront. As Christians, can we consistently fight in wars and kill other human beings, even though we are called to love our enemies? Well, personally, I think that we can still serve in just wars and kill others if we have sufficient justification. Indeed, sometimes we are morally obligated to use lethal force when the situation requires it. For example, pacifism in the face of monstrous tyrants like Hitler cannot be justified. Pacifism in these cases will just lead to the deaths of more innocents, and there is no clear condemnation of just war or even capital punishment found in the Bible. However, the Church does have a strong history of pacifistic ideals, as many of the first Christians interpreted Christ's teachings as requiring total pacifism. Well, the last thing I'd like to mention is a Pew Global survey that was released in early October which shows a remarkable relationship between wealth and religiosity. Wealthy nations tend to be much less religious, and poor nations tend to be much, much more religious. Interestingly, the United States is a significant outlier, being much more religious than our wealth and resources would predict. This data lends support to the idea that some level of suffering can actually increase the chance that someone will have faith in God. When all material needs are met, it is easy to be self-sufficient. However, when people are poor and desperate, the illusion of self-sufficiency is quickly swept away. I was recently invited to be a guest speaker at Campus Crusade for Christ at Saginaw Valley State University, where I attend college. I decided to give my talk on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for today's main feature, I'm just going to post that talk. Anyways, thanks for coming. Who actually came to the last crew meeting uh, last week? Okay, actually, yeah, a lot of you guys. All right, well, last week, uh, Professor Kapersky came here and he gave a talk on the historical reliability of the New Testament. 
And in that talk, he said that there are two things that a Christian uh, would need to show in order to show that the Christian faith is rational to believe. And one is that uh, the New Testament is generally reliable. And the other one was that uh, Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead physically. And so just kind of to play off what he talked about last week, I figured that I would cover the other important uh, foundation of the Christian faith, and that's the resurrection. And you know, I really think that this, this, is, this is the foundation of the Christian faith. This is what it's all based on. Um, and Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 14, um, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And so if the resurrection is false, we might as well, we might as well just you know, go home. Um, I now don't have to feel guilty about sleeping at church. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we might as well spend some time doing something else. Because if the resurrection is false, then Christianity is not true, and we're wasting our time. Um, so with that in mind, a lot rides on, on the resurrection. Now, this, is, this is the foundation for our faith. And so for tonight, I wanted to just give like a, uh, just a brief case for um, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And I'm going to base this on four facts that we can know about history. And um, the interesting thing is that all four of the facts I'm going to talk about tonight are actually uh, affirmed by the majority of New Testament critics and scholars, even those that aren't Christians. And so I'm going to argue that on the basis of these four facts, we can make a pretty good case for the resurrection. Uh, all right, so without further ado, the first one is uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this one because, to be honest, the, the historical consensus is basically unanimous, that Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross. Um, not only is it confirmed all throughout the New Testament in all the different books, um, it's also confirmed in uh, secular historians. Uh, for example, the Roman historian Tacitus uh, uh, reports that Jesus Christ died on a cross. And, uh, and he's generally known to be a very reliable source. And uh, like I said, just virtually all scholars acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross. But this is an important fact because this is, this is, this is the starting point for the resurrection. But the second fact I want to talk about is the evidence for the empty tomb. Um, the idea of this fact is that Jesus was buried in a tomb after his death. And, uh, and after that, uh, his tomb was found empty. Uh, now I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one because, first of all, it's not quite as widely accepted as the first fact I talked about, even though... Uh, the majority still do accept it. But also because, um, you know, this is a significant fact. Uh, it, it brings to mind the question, if the tomb was actually found empty, then where did the body go? So it's a very intriguing fact that uh, we can know about history. And so I actually just want to read uh, real quick. You can follow along in your Bible if you want, but obviously I have the verses up there. I'm just going to read the account of uh, the burial story uh, that's found in Mark 15. Um, now, the burial story actually relates to this, uh, the empty tomb story because if we know that the burial story is accurate, then that proves that the location of the tomb was known in, in the first century. And that means that when the disciples were originally preaching uh, Christianity, the tomb could have been checked. And so the burial story actually goes a long ways towards establishing the truth of the empty tomb. So anyways, um, this is the account. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Okay, so this is just a basic burial story that we find in Mark. Um, and so what, are, what's the, what is the evidence that this has actually occurred? Well, the first point is that uh, the account is very simple, and it lacks legendary development. Usually in myths or legends, you're going to find like theological reflection or just like absurd exaggerations. 
But you can see for yourself, the account is very simple, and it reads like straight history. And the second point, and I think this is even more important, this is a really good piece of evidence for this account. Uh, the authors would have had no reason to invent Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, and there's, there's a couple reasons for this. Now, it mentions that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. And what they're talking about here was the, um, the council was the, the Sanhedrin. And this was a group of 70 individuals that kind of composed a Jewish Supreme Court. And so they were very well-known uh, prestigious figures in their day. And so if you were going to invent or make up a story, then you wouldn't uh, play someone famous that, or that could easily be found out about in the story. They would have used somebody more obscure. So if they were lying about Joseph of Arimathea, who's a member of this very uh, limited council, would have been well-known, uh, then it would have been easy for, uh, for them to be found out. They would not have made up a story like this. But the second point is even more important, is that the authors wouldn't have had a motivation to name Joseph of Arimathea as the one that gave Jesus an honorable burial. Um, because you have, you have to think, back in the first century, the early Christians, there was a little bit of animosity between the early Christians and the Jewish leadership. You know, uh, the Christians were being persecuted by the Jewish leadership. In addition to that, um, you know, the, the, the Jewish leadership had taken a big role in uh, condemning Jesus to death. And so there was a lot of animosity amongst the early Christians uh, concerning leadership members like Joseph. And so it seems odd that they would, that if they made up the story, that the authors of, the, of this, uh, this account would say that this member of the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin was the one that was responsible for giving Jesus an honorable burial and doing what is right. Meanwhile, the disciples are nowhere to be found. They've fled and they've abandoned Jesus. So, so this is kind of an embarrassing fact that they would have no motivation to invent Joseph. Okay, and then the third thing uh, to mention about this is that there aren't any alternative accounts. And uh, there's nowhere you find in the New Testament or anywhere in extra-biblical sources, even amongst critics of Christianity, like the early Jewish uh, critics, you don't find any other accounts of the burial. And since this reads like straight history, um, it, it just seems like this is actually what happened. There's just no evidence of any other story. All right, so now I want to talk about evidence just for the empty tomb account in general. And uh, so I'm going to read, an, uh, read the account from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. It's pretty long, so bear with me, but um, I would just like to read it now. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the, uh, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. All right, so what is the evidence that we have that this is actually what happened? Well, first, uh, just like with the, uh, the burial story, this, this account is very simple, and it lacks any sort of legendary development. It doesn't have any theological reflections. It just tells what happened. And it's actually kind of instructive to compare this with another account, uh, which is known to be a forgery, uh, which is found in the Gospel of Peter. Now, this is a, a false gospel that was written like in the second century. Um, and this is the account they give that you find in this document. Now in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers, two by two in every watch, were keeping guard, there rang out a loud voice in heaven, and they saw the heavens opened, and two men come down from there in a great brightness, and draw nigh to the sepulchre. 
The stone, on, the stone which had been laid against the entrance to the sepulchre started of itself to roll and gave way to the side, and the sepulchre was opened, and both the young men entered in. When now those soldiers saw this, they awakened the centurion and the elders, for they also were there to assist at the watch. And whilst they were relating what they had seen, they saw again three men come out from the sepulchre, and two of them sustaining the other, and a cross following them, and the heads of the two reaching to heaven. But that of him who was led of them by the, hand, by the hand overpassing the heavens. And they heard a voice out of the heavens crying, Thou hast preached to them that sleep. And from the cross they, there was heard the answer, Yea. Alright, so we actually have in this count, we have a talking cross. We have men with their heads reaching to heavens. I can't even imagine what that looks like. But, so you can see, I mean, this is, the, this is the way that accounts look like when they're legendary, uh, when they're fictional accounts. They have all sorts of exaggerations and, um, and, and uh, absurdities, actually, in the accounts. But we don't find this in the empty tomb uh, accounts we find in the New Testament. Okay, well, the second point here, um, I think, is this is a really crucial point, and I think that this alone really vindicates the, uh, the evidence for the empty tomb. And that is the discovery by women followers. Now, uh, Professor Kapersky talked last week, he kind of touched on this, and um, the idea is that it would have been an embarrassing fact for the authors of the New Testament to record that women were the ones who discovered the tomb. Um, this is because in the ancient times, uh, women were not considered reliable witnesses, and uh, they weren't actually even allowed to testify in court. And so this, the fact that they were the ones that discovered the empty tomb would have been kind of embarrassing. And, um, historians use what's known as a criti the criterion, criterion of, authentic of, uh, of embarrassment. And the idea here is that when an author of an ancient text writes something that would be embarrassing to the author, then it's probably true. And if you think about this, it makes a lot of sense, because I might tell a lie to make myself look good, but I'm not going to tell a lie that makes me look like an idiot. It just doesn't make any sense, right? So the fact that there's something that's embarrassing in the text written down really vindicates the fact that it really was historical. And so not only do the women, are the women the one that, that are finding uh, the empty tomb, during this time the disciples have fled, they're cowards, they've abandoned Jesus. And so if, if you were um, one of the early church fathers writing uh, a fictional account, you're not going to say, well, the disciples, the early church leaders, fled the scene and a bunch of brave women came and were the ones that found the empty tomb. It would just be totally embarrassing. And so the fact that it was recorded shows that, well, they didn't have any choice. That was what actually happened. The men really were cowards and the women really were brave and found the tomb. So what can you do? <laughs> um, and the, the next point is that if the tomb, um, if the tomb was, was not empty, then Christianity could not have spread. And the important point here to know is that Christianity actually got a foothold right in the city where Christ was publicly executed and buried. And so it's not like it, it was just preached in far off lands and they couldn't really check the facts. Um, so even if the, if the burial account that was given in the New Testament was wrong, as long as there was any sort of idea where Jesus' tomb was, then the Jewish authorities who were in the city and who were opposing the Christian heresy would certainly have tried to uncover the, uh, the body and therefore dispose the whole thing as, as a big farce. But the fact is, um, Christianity started and spread in the very city where Christ was publicly executed and buried. And so that's good evidence for the empty tomb. And then finally, this one I think is also really, really strong. Um, the first actual response by the, by the Jewish authorities um, that were trying to rebut Christianity, trying to refute Christianity, the first response assumed the empty tomb. And once again, we're going to read an account uh, found, found in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. Uh, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. 
When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now the, port, the important point about this is not necessarily the accuracy of this story. It's just the very last line where he says that this, this story has been passed amongst the Jews to this day. And so you, see, you can see here in Matthew evidence that the first Jewish response, critics of Christianity, their first response to the claim that Christ was raised and that the tomb was empty was that the disciples had stolen the body. Now that seems like that, that's not the kind of response you would make if the tomb wasn't actually empty. They would have just simply pointed to the tomb and said, well, you're wrong. Christ's body still is laying in there. Uh, you're crazy. But the fact is, they had to kind of they had to rationalize away the fact that Christ's body was missing. And, and this is, so we actually get here evidence from the critics of Christianity that already assumes that the tomb was empty. So this is really strong evidence for that. All right, let's move on. Well, actually, first, um, just to give you an idea of, of the fact that most people actually do uh, accept this. Uh, Jacob Creamer says that by far most exegetes hold, hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. And so it's really kind of almost strange that the majority of critics, even skeptics of Christianity, affirm that the tomb actually was found empty. And this is a significant fact. Okay, the third one that I want to talk about is uh, the appearances of Jesus. And so the idea is that uh, after his death, some of the disciples and early followers of Christ experienced visions of Jesus. And uh, we hear about this, we hear this account in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. And so I'm going to read that right now. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Okay, now this, uh, this verse actually uh, Professor Kapersky talked about last week as well. And he mentioned there that it actually contains a creed, um, which is kind of an early statement that was memorized by uh, Christians. And this creed dates back much further than the book, 1 Corinthians, actually does. And uh, most scholars will recognize that the creed actually dates back within 10 years, probably actually earlier, close uh, right after Christ's death. And so this is extremely early evidence um, for, for these appearances. And, that, and on, on this basis alone, most scholars recognize that this really actually happened. Now this account is actually pretty interesting, uh, what it, what, um, the appearances that it talks about. It mentions uh, individuals seeing Christ. It men- mentions groups, like the 500. And notice that it says, uh, Paul me- mentions that most of the, uh, the brothers who, have saw, who saw Christ, the, that group of 500, are still living. And so that's kind of a challenge that you can go out and check. Uh, these are reliable witnesses. You can actually check the facts. Um, it also contains um, a reference to James. And now James, we learn in the, uh, in the New Testament, was, was uh, the brother of, of Jesus, and he was actually a skeptic uh, throughout uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. And then we learn that later on, he actually became one of the, uh, one of the uh, strongest leaders of the Christian faith. And so this, this appearance is what explains that. Uh, he, he didn't believe in Jesus during his life, but after... After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, and that's the reason that he changed his mind and uh, turned from a skeptic to an early uh, follower of Christ. And then also it contains Paul's testimony. Now, it's important to remember that Paul was actually a persecutor of Christians uh, before his appearance. 
And so the, the appearance here also explains why Paul had this dramatic change in character, going from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian himself. And so like I said, this is an early creedal statement. On that basis, most scholars recognize the truth of this. Uh, another point is that the appearances to the women are also very probable. Um, and you notice that there's no, the women aren't reported in this creed, and that's because, like what, what we talked about earlier, <clears throat> it would have been an embarrassment to the authors of the New Testament at the time. And so they just left that out. It was kind of embarrassing to them that women were the first to see Jesus. And, but, uh, so on that basis, on the criterion of embarrassment, uh, we know from the Gospels that, that women actually probably did see, apparent, uh, had visions of Christ as well. Um, and so Dr. Gerd Ludeman, this guy is actually an atheist, uh, an atheist scholar. He admits, he says, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Okay, so the last one I want to talk about is the origin of the Christian faith. And remember, I, I, I quoted the verse early on from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, about uh, the re- um, Christ's resurrection being the foundation of the faith. That's what the faith is based on. And this is the, this is the case from the very early days. The historical, the historical evidence shows that from the very beginning, the basis of the Christian faith was the resurrection. Okay, so the fact of the matter is... Um, Christianity was a very unlikely religion to start in the first century. And there were a lot of factors working against it that makes it surprising that it ever really got a foothold. And so I just want to mention just real quick three factors uh, that really went strongly against the, uh, the likelihood of Christianity succeeding. And the first one is the crucifixion. In America, we don't really live in this kind of culture, but in the ancient culture, it was what's known as an honor-shame society. And this is kind of similar to modern-day Japan. Um, but in these kind of cultures, honor is the most important thing, and shame is the thing that you really want to avoid. And the crucifixion, uh, crucifixion was not just a painful way to die. Uh, it was also systematically designed to take away your honor and to shame you as much as possible. Um, the, the Jewish historian Josephus called the crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. And so this was an extremely dishonorable way to die. And you can, you can see uh, hints of this in the New Testament accounts when they talk about the things that Christ went through leading up to and during the crucifixion. Um, being forced to mock and being forced to wear like a crown of thorns. He was spit on. Uh, his clothes were taken away and uh, gambled away. Um, so every, everything about the crucifixion and the flogging that took place before, all of it was designed specifically to take away any sort of honor that Christ could have and to shame him as much as possible. Given the fact that they lived in this honor-shame culture then, that would have been a huge, huge um, problem when you're talking about spreading this faith. And that's why we find that the disciples abandoned Jesus when after the crucifixion. In their eyes, uh, this was the end of the story. We kind of look at it now and we think, well, what a noble thing that Christ you know, suffered through this for us. But that's not how it would have been viewed in the first century. They would have thought, what a dishonorable way to die. He must have been accursed by God. So this would be a huge stigma that the early Christians would have to overcome. But uh, the second fact is that they had to preach a physical resurrection. And it might sound like pretty cool to us. We, we, we're kind of all right with the idea of a physical resurrection. We're all right with eternal life. But in the ancient world, in Jewish thinking, they weren't really very fond of, in, this is in Gentile or pagan thinking, they, they weren't very fond of the material. They thought that the material world was inherently evil. And so they didn't really like the idea of a physical resurrection. They thought of the idea of... Um, the afterlife was separated from the body, and so it was resurrection of your soul or your mind or whatever. But they would not have been very, um, very receptive to the idea of a physical resurrection. As far as the Jewish uh, thought of the day was concerned, they were um, 
their preconceived notions of, about the resurrection was that it would happen at the end of the world and that it would concern all people. But Jesus' resurrection contradicted both of those uh, strongly held ideas. It happened to one person in time. And so, from, from, as far as Jewish thinking was concerned, the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead was absurd. And that's why we find so many people having a hard time believing it, even after Christ is appearing to them. It's just fascinating to them. They, they had no idea that this kind of thing was coming up. And so, the, the fact that they had to preach a physical resurrection actually would have been a big stumbling block uh, as far as spreading the faith. And the third factor I want to talk about is that Christianity was an innovative religion. And, you know, today, like America, it seems like, you know, if you're an innovative religion, it's actually more popular. You know, people are getting into, like, New Age, Buddhist stuff, and that seems to be all the rage. But, like, in the old days, in the ancient world, uh, religion, the, the truth value of religion was based on custom and tradition. And so the older you were and the longer you've been around, the, the more respect you were given. And so it makes it pretty tough when you're talking about a faith, well, you know, this happened a year ago, Christ raised from the dead. This is very new and innovative. And uh, it would make it extremely difficult for them to spread the faith. All right, uh, Professor C.F.D. Moore actually um, said something about this that I think wraps up the idea very nicely. Uh, if the coming into existence of the Nazarenes, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, rips a great hole in history, a hole of the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? the birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. So if you think about it, these factors, they're all a big problem, but they can be overcome by a resurrection because the resurrection would vindicate Jesus and return his honor after the shameful crucifixion. Um, if Christ really was bodily raised from the dead, well, like it or not, there is a physical resurrection. Nothing you can do about it. And the same thing as far as an innovative religion. If you don't like innovative religion, that's too bad. But we have evidence that Christ rose from the dead. He actually appeared to us. And so the resurrection can explain these facts. But how, how else can you explain them? Christianity would not have gotten off the ground without the resurrection, just based on uh, all the disadvantages it had as starting out starting off with a new faith. Now, given this, I want to mention just one possibility. Someone might say, well, you don't really need the actual resurrection in order to start the faith. All you need is a belief in the resurrection. And so maybe what happened was, well, some grave robbers stole Jesus' body, and then the disciples went to his tomb, and they were like, well, where's his body? And then because of that, they hallucinated vision to Jesus, and they thought, well, he must be raised from the dead. Well, remarkably, even that would not explain the origin of the Christian faith. And this is why. In, in Jewish thought, there would have been another category for what they would have assumed had happened. And that's what's known as translation. And this is found in the Old Testament, like with Enoch and Elijah, where they were translated directly to heaven. And so, like I said, the Jewish thought of the day was that the physical resurrection wouldn't occur until the end of the age uh, concerning all people. So if they went to the tomb and they saw that his body was gone, and then they projected visions of Jesus um, for some reason, they would have just assumed, well, that he had translated directly to heaven. They wouldn't have started preaching the counterintuitive idea of a physical resurrection. So even if you grant... The, uh, the skeptic, the idea that, well, so, somehow the, the body was missing and the, and the disciples all hallucinated, it still doesn't explain why we have the Christian faith the way that we have it today. Okay. Well, um, I guess that covers pretty much all the material I wanted to talk about, but I guess I'd like to open up to questions. If you have any questions about what I've talked about, or if you want to like discuss other like theories that you've heard as far as explaining these kind of facts, or, or what happened to Jesus. Does anyone have any questions about this stuff?
circular stone. From what I, I think, from what I know, don't, don't quote me on this, I guess, but I think that the, uh, the stone actually was, was placed into kind of like a groove. And so it might not have been a huge boulder, but it was like, it would be, it would be very difficult to move it on your own. And so, yeah, you, would, you wouldn't be able to move it. So it was easier to move it into the groove, but once it was in the groove, it was very difficult. Exactly, exactly. And that's why things like the idea, well, Christ didn't die, and he was in the tomb, and then he got himself out. First of all, it's absurd uh, based on medical reasons, but also you wouldn't be able to roll it. <laughs> and we, we can get in that if you want to, but uh, that's pretty silly theory, I think. But even if he was alive in the tomb, you know, limping around, he was extremely injured, uh, you wouldn't be able to roll away the stone because it's in this groove, it's extremely heavy stone. So yeah, it'd be easier to roll in than out. That's my preliminary research on it, but I would want to, you know, I'm not exactly sure, so please don't roll me in that. Do you know of any explanations for the Shroud of Turin? The Shroud of Turin? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Was that just something that came from just the bottom? <laughs> Someone's kept believing it was a coma when this was made. Okay. What do you know? Okay, what do I know about the Shroud of Turin? Well, this is actually a pretty controversial issue. And um, so I don't include it like in my in my like apologetic for the resurrection because you know it's just gonna be more harm than good. As far as I know, I don't really think there's very um, good evidence against the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin, uh, for those who don't know, is kind of this big cloth that looks like it has like a vision of Christ implanted in it. And uh, this was found, like I guess, in the 14th century or something like that. Um, so the only problem, really, in my opinion, with the Shroud of Turin is that you can't really trace it back far into history. It kind of like shows up in the 14th century, and that kind of increases the probability that it was a fraud. And so, okay, so skeptics of Christianity are going to say that the Shroud of Turin was a fraud. It was made by somebody, um, like, you know, in the 13th century or something like that. Um, and the other, the other piece of evidence that they will cite will say that it's been carbon dated to, and shown that it originated in, like, in the 13th or 12th century or something like that. And uh, carbon dating is just a method of um, the scientists use to date objects that aren't, aren't very old based on the carbon 14 levels or something. Um, and now, in my opinion, the way that they did they, that they did this carbon dating was actually pretty faulty because they only dated it from like one corner of the shroud, as far as I know. And the problem was this this shroud had been through a fire, like in the 14th or 15th century or something. The shroud of Turin was in this building, was in a fire, and uh, and it's well known that fire can corrupt uh, carbon dating methods. And so, to me, it just seems that well, at least you should you know date in different areas of the turn of the shroud. Because um, you know, one like one little area could easily just be contaminated, and so I don't I don't think that evidence is very strong. Now, evidence in favor of the shroud of Turin is that first of all, we have no one has been able to reproduce a way that you can create the image that's on the shroud. What is it? Right. What's that? It has an image. What is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like a cloth, and it's like yeah, it's just kind of an image of a person. Uh -huh. um, 
hard to describe, I guess. Which I picture it's show. like, is this linked to the resurrection? Yeah. It's because well, it's pretty like an imprint. Like, um, let's say you were to go and has anyone ever been in like Spencer, I think, Spencer's or anything, and played with one of those like pin needle things? Stick your hand and get a shake. That's kind of what it's like. Mm -hmm. He just made this implantation, like stained and cloth to where it looked like right. a picture, and the picture looks like what many couldn't see, what Jesus would look like. Exactly. Um, just to clarify exactly what this, this is, the idea is that this shroud is what was covering Christ when he was in the tomb. And um, if that's true, then that would be proof. I, the thought is that um, that this is actually direct evidence that Christ was raised from the dead because that's how the implant was made on the cloth. Uh, so you have a question? Is it about this? No, it was just a comment. Okay, sure. Yeah. I was just going to say the, the imprint they think is from the energy of when um, Christ was resurrected. Right. And that's why they can't duplicate it. And so it looks like there's a negative. If you looked at a negative of a photograph, that's what the shroud looks like under black light. And sure. so that they can't figure out how this energy was di displaced onto the cloth. So they think it was from the restaurant. Right. That's the, that's the basic idea as far as uh, a Christian supporting the shroud would say that. It was kind of like a radiation or some sort of energy that happened during uh, the resurrection. But, yeah. Is this at all biblically founded? No, not whatsoever. Right, no. so why does this, like, I don't really understand, like, how is this accurate? Like, I, I, I believe in God and everything about it, obviously, but, like, I don't necessarily believe in, like, a shroud of turret. Well, I don't I don't know how this relates to Christianity, I guess. It doesn't really, in any sense, nothing rides on this. If the shroud is authentic, then it's like a knockdown case of well, the resurrection engine has, if you can prove it is true. Like I said, I didn't even include it in what I'm talking about here because it's so controversial, and I think we can base the case of the resurrection on stuff that every historian has access to. And so my, my comments on the shroud don't really you know, have anything to do with whether or not the case I talked about tonight work, works, you know what I mean? So, but if the shroud is, is legitimate, then that's just pretty cool. And it would just be a real cool piece of evidence. It would just be fascinating. But my, my personal thoughts on it is that, you know, I actually think that there's decent evidence that the shroud is, you know, is from Christ. But that's my personal opinion. So I don't think that's a part of this. Yeah. Isn't there another theory that the disciples themselves actually stole the body and made up the story? Right. Uh, that that Christ, you know, rose from the dead. Oh, we saw visions of Christ, you know, and all this sort of stuff. But I think Dr. Christian talked about that a few years ago as well, and the fact that um, I don't know if it's almost all, or actually all of the disciples died, were killed because of their faith. Okay. Yeah, well, because actually that's what like, I mentioned the first Jewish response was to the Christians was that, well, you guys stole the body. Now, at the time, that objection might have made a little bit of sense. But now, looking back on history, we see how the disciples and the early Christians behave, and it just doesn't make any sense. Because, like the Christians uh, mentions, you know, they, nobody got any benefits for being a Christian. Even if, even if you deny the evidence that they had died from the faith, um, the fact of the matter is, being a Christian was not very fun in the first century, unless... <laughs> the only reason to be a Christian would be if it was actually true. Um, they faced... Um, it was, they lived in a collectivist culture, and so family and identity was the most uh, identity in a group was the most important thing. And so Christians would be often separated from their families; um, they'd be disowned by their families, which was horrible in the ancient world. Um, like they faced persecution from the Romans, in particular, like them, and the Jews didn't really like them very much. The only people that liked them were fellow Christians, who at first weren't very many. 
And they just had no advantage. There was no advantage of being a Christian. And so this is absolutely no reason why the disciples would steal the body. Um, this is absolutely no motivation. So that's why that theory has been rejected um, by all modern scholars, too. You don't, you don't really hear that anymore from, from scholars. Uh, like I said, the Jews, back in the day, they claimed it. But looking back in history, it, it just doesn't add up. That's the main uh, reason that that one doesn't work. Is there actually um, historians or atheists or whatever that believe in the resurrection as stated, but they still don't believe in Christianity? And if so, what the heck do they believe in? <laughs> Fair enough. That's a good question. Um, well, because I mentioned that a lot of the a lot of the scholars think the myth and facts are true, and they don't really have any good explanation. A lot of them just really just don't say anything about it. It is crazy, because if you admit the facts, it, I mean, it seems to me, maybe I'm biased, but it seems to me that these four facts add up pretty strongly to show that the resurrection actually occurred. Yeah. Um, now, <coughs> there is a really interesting case of this uh, Jewish scholar named Pintus Lapid, who actually accepts the evidence for the resurrection. He's a Jew. He believes that Christ literally was resurrected from the dead, but he thinks that that is that, that God did that in order to bring in a wider community of believers. And so that he's still Jewish and still thinks the Messiah is coming. I mean, it might be Jesus, but he's not convinced. But still, just on the basis of historical evidence, he admits that the resurrection occurred. So kind of a strange case. Um, seems bizarre to me, but, uh, um, you know, obviously the majority of people that accept the resurrection are also going to be Christians. Yeah. But even those that don't accept the resurrection still usually will have to accept the evidence because, I mean, that's objective. They can Actually, first I just wanted to mention a couple applications of this stuff real quick. I know I'm going to take a breath up here. But, um, you know, some of you here might not be Christians. And for you, I just hope that this, you know, this gets you thinking. You know, Christianity is something worth thinking about. And, you know, the evidence is there. And I think that, uh, you know, hopefully this just spurs you on to, to really go into a personal investigation for yourself and see whether or not this really is true. And, can you know, as, as Paul said, if, if Christ is not raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. But on the other hand, what if Christ is raised? I mean, it has huge implications for how we should live our lives and what we should believe. Um, but if you are a Christian, then, you know, I hope that this is encouraging, uh, that you can know that, you know, your faith isn't founded on wishy-washy um, thinking, you know, that you have a solid, there's a solid foundation for your faith. And so, I mean, I know a lot of us, I think, we have experiences where we go through, you know, spiritual highs and lows. It's just the ebb and flow of life. But it's nice to know, you know, when we're just really not on a spiritual high. It's nice to know that our faith is actually founded on something objective. You know what I mean? Like, even if, even if we're not feeling it, you know, the facts are there. And so we can be confident. Uh, we can be confident that Christ really is raised. And I think that's really cool. And then also, you know, I think this, knowing this kind of stuff can really help with our, uh, with our evangelism. You know, it's, it's nice. First of all, it help, can help increase our confidence. We don't have to feel like we're peddling off some intellectually uh, inferior worldview to people. And also, you know, we can just use this kind of material and let, you know, let people know. You know, actually, there's good evidence that Christ raised from the dead. This episode, we are going to take a look at The Sun Rises by William Lane Craig, which was published in 2001. Now, this book is actually a less technical and less detailed version of his book, Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus, which, unfortunately, I have not yet read because the book is out of print and now costs well over $100. Nevertheless, The Sun Rises is an affordable, readable, and useful treatment of the evidence for the resurrection. Craig bases his historical case on three facts which he claims enjoy widespread scholarly acceptance as well as great historical attestation. The three facts are the empty tomb, post-crucifixion appearances, and the origin of the Christian faith. 
On the basis of these three facts, Craig contends that we have powerful reasons to believe that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. Craig also spends a chapter addressing alternative theories, like the idea that the disciples stole the body, and the swoon theory. Unfortunately, I felt that this chapter was awkwardly placed in the book, because he addresses alternative theories before he gives a positive case for the three facts. Moreover, this is the section of the book that could have been expanded quite a bit. In addition to the meat of his argument, Craig also discusses a few peripheral issues. In the opening chapter, which I found very enjoyable, he discusses the dilemma of modern man and his struggle to find a meaning to existence. In the final chapter, Craig explains the consequences of Christ's resurrection, claiming that it can help us find that meaning which we so desperately need. He discusses the importance of Christianity and appeals to the reader to accept Christ and transform their lives. Overall, Craig's writing is fantastic and his arguments are powerful. This book is an important addition to anyone's library who is interested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And given the importance of the subject matter, that should be everybody's library. So my rating for this book is four and a half stars out of five. Well, that about wraps everything up for today. I would just like to remind the reader that I look forward to any sort of feedback I can get on the show. And you can email me at kyle at skepticalchristian.com. Also, check out the main podcast page. Go to skepticalchristian.com and click the podcast link in the main navigation. There you can find links to past shows and also all the transcripts for every single episode. In addition, there's a place there to leave comments on each show. If you enjoy this podcast, please just consider giving me a review at the iTunes Music Store. That's all for the Skeptical Christian Podcast, episode number 12. Thanks for joining